Good morning and happy Easter, everybody. A common phrase that I hear a lot this time of year is from well-meaning, good-intentioned folks, friends of mine who tell me right before Easter to knock it out of the park. They'll tell me that people are going to be watching, people are going to be coming, so they want me to knock it out of the park. A hope, a wish, a kind of a command, a little bit demanding if you ask me, and a whole lot of pressure. Hey, Robert, knock it out of the park. What does that even mean if the sermon is it? What does it mean to knock it? What does it mean to go out of the park? What about just a ground rule double? Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. I don't know if I'm going to knock it out of the park, but I know that it's a phenomenal Sunday, and we join with billions of people around the world as we celebrate Easter, most of us in a very different way. In Mississippi, as we've been told to shelter in place during the COVID-19 crisis, our agriculture and commerce secretary, a guy by the name of Andy Gibson, he asked us or recommended as a family, as families, that we plant a garden together. I want to ask y'all, have any of you done that during your shelter-in-place order? Have any of you as a family pushed away from the screens and planted a garden? I'm just thinking about my family. Maybe we're different than yours, but that just wouldn't go over very well. That wouldn't be high priority in our household. I imagine myself walking into the living room with my wife and kids, grown kids, and saying, hey, guys, let's plant a garden. I thought about that. Choose a location, select the vegetables that you want to grow, prepare the soil, plant the seed, water, fertilize, keep the weeds out, watch it grow, reap what you sow. I don't know much about gardening. I think if I gave it a shot, I might even knock it out of the park. I want to begin this morning with a question, a question about hope. And here is that question. It's simply this, what are you hoping for? Over the last month, all of us have seen so much fall. We've seen the stock market, consumer confidence, the GDP. We've seen the employment rate. We've seen our national health and well-being fall. So the question is super pertinent. What are you hoping for? There is a connection I've learned between hope and faith. Faith requires believing and believing involves the mind. Faith requires commitment and commitment involves the will. And faith requires Hope, and hope involves the heart. Hope is something that we really feel. Hopelessness is a phrase, a word used on too many suicide notes, reflected in too much pain in therapy and counseling sessions. Hope is vital to our existence. Hope is connected to faith. It's also connected to love. There are two types of disappointments. The first kind of disappointment is when you hope for something and you don't get it. The second type of disappointment is when you hope for something, you get it, and you discover, lo and behold, it's not what you wanted. The wisdom literature in particular of the Bible speaks to both of these. There's a proverb, it's chapter 13 and verse 12, and it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Remember, hope requires the heart. It's born in the heart. It grows or dies in the heart. And hope deferred, Proverbs says, makes the heart sick. A leadership guy I know talks about there's activities that you can do each day when you look at your to-do list. Some of you, we know who you are. You don't have a to-do list on the daily or the weekly. But those of you who have a to-do list, you can either do it, you can delegate it, some of us can, or you can defer it. 
And if you're like me, and if you, when you start deferring something, you just put it off and put it off. You don't ask someone else to do it. You don't do it yourself. You say, someday I'm going to do it. You defer it. And many times when we defer something, it never gets done. And Proverbs pierces our heart by saying that can be our heart. When hope is so elusive for us, when so evasive, it gets deferred. And over time, it breaks our heart. There is a hope, as we said, where a form of disappointment, where you hope for something, you get it, and then you discover that it's not what you wanted. Ecclesiastes is the wisdom literature for this very idea. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says that I didn't deny my eyes anything that it wanted. I didn't hold off anything that my heart went after. I fully indulged my instincts and my appetites. But the conclusion wasn't, hey, follow me, this is the way to live. The conclusion is what we can see in our own hearts and lives and in our day today, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or Bill Cosby or fill in the blank. We're created in a way where desires, hopes, our our wants become distorted. Years ago, in fact, it's my wife's favorite movie, The movie Shawshank Redemption depicted an argument among its two central characters, between its two central characters, about the nature and reality of hope. Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins, I think most all of you will remember. Morgan Freeman's argument regarding hope was that hope is a dangerous thing. It'll drive a man insane. Translation, it'll break his heart. Tim Robbins, on the other hand, says that when a woman or a man, when they quit hoping, they start dying, which is true. What I love, what Susan loves, what many of us love about this film is that at the end, in the last few minutes, Morgan Freeman is released from prison. And what are the words he uses? I think he begins four to five really beautiful sentences at the very end of the film by saying, I hope, I hope. I get reunited with my friend and I can shake his hand. I hope these Pacific blue waters in in Mexico are all that they are made out to be. I hope. There are a couple of types of hope that we would do well to understand. The one type of hope is I hope for. I hope for this. Hoping for something is, there's, it's endless, there's variety there, it's situational and circumstantial. Honestly, there were some things I hoped for a few months ago that I'm really not hoping for anymore. There's some things that I'll be hoping for a year from now that I may not be hoping for a decade from now. It's situational, it's circumstantial, it's endless, and there's variety there in what we hope for. But what happens when what you've hoped for, you realize that it's going to be eternally deferred. When what you're longing for and hoping for, you're not going to see. You're not seeing it in your life now. In fact, you may never see it. What you and I need is something more than just hope for. What we need is hope in. Hope in is not situational or circumstantial. Hope in is an anchor. In fact, Hebrews 6 says it's an anchor for the soul. It holds you in the storms of life. I sat with someone across a table 
just a couple of weeks ago and all that they had been hoping for, they themselves realized they weren't going to get it. And then they drew the conclusion they're never going to be able to get it. And the question that's central to our human existence about the nature and reality of hope is not so much what you are hoping for, but it's what you're hoping in. On Easter, I ask you, do you have an anchor for the soul? Let me be honest as a pastor and confess or admit a couple of mistakes I have in my thinking and my feeling about hope. Sometimes I make the mistake of thinking that hope cannot exist with sorrow. Also, I think that I have to generate it myself. We're going to look today at Peter. We're going to look at the Easter story The focus, of course, is on Jesus, but a man named Peter who is central to this story. And he's going to teach us what we need, a fallacy in our thinking. If you think like me and you think that hope cannot exist with sorrow, and then when I don't feel hopeful, I have to generate it myself. He made a statement. I'm going to to look at it. I'm going to ask us to look at it later. It's going to be found in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read at the end of the message, just read a few verses in 1 Peter 1. But Peter says this, he talks about a living hope. He talks about a new birth, and he talks about a divine inheritance. Before we look at that, let's consider Peter the man. Go back in time with me to the upper room. Here's a depiction of that with Jesus and his disciples. It was the night before he would be betrayed. And in this setting, Jesus talks to these men. He says to them, he, he, knowing that he'll be betrayed, knowing what's coming, he takes the bread, breaks it, and gives thanks. When they get to the wine, he explains to them. It's a foreshadowing. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. This would foreshadow what would happen only hours later. They would leave the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was when Jesus would be arrested And knowing Peter, I'm just sure of it, that he began to think internally, enough, enough, enough bad, enough betrayal, enough arrest, enough talk about death. He wanted, he wanted some certainty. He wanted more certainty. He wanted more intervention. He wanted deliverance and intervention. He wanted more miracles. He didn't want the darkness. He wanted Jesus to knock it out of the park. In the summer of 1986, a film was released that depicted students at an elite U.S. Navy flying school. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I can hear uh, the music, the soundtrack. I can see Miramar, the station. I can see the thundering squadron of fighter jets going overhead. Um, Charlie, Iceman, Goose, and Maverick. I don't know how many young men became pilots after seeing that movie, but I bet a whole bunch more went into a bar and noticed a woman and sang a very poor version of the Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. The movie has many great lines. Among my favorite is when one man looks at the other and he says, Son, your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. I want to ask you a question. The question is this on Easter. Have you ever made a claim that you couldn't back up? Second, have you ever been broken by your own failure? No one to blame, no fault that you can shift to others. You, your failure, your shame, your regret. 
And that's the story of Peter. This one who had boasted of his devotion and commitment had become instantly, it seemed, a coward. He had gone and hidden in the shadows. It can be that way for us. There's a a psalm, Psalm, the 24th psalm, that asks a question. I bet this was rolling around with Peter when he felt so much regret. The question is this. It says, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And the answer is he with clean hands and a pure heart. Peter, I know, felt dirty. That's what sin does. Take a look at a book that I didn't read entirely. I glanced through it several years ago. A book entitled The Secret Life of Germs, written by the dean of microbiology at NYU. In The Secret Life of Germs, he says that the average human hand has about 30,000 germs on it. He talks about how germs are on top of the knuckles and in between the fingers and underneath our fingernails. 30,000 germs on an average human hand. Are you with anybody watching this with family, friends, roommate? Look over at them. If they have two hands, that's 60,000. Look at their hands. That's 60,000 germs. Just tell them on Easter Sunday. Just say, you're gross. What does it mean to be clean? Most people... Research surveys show don't wash hands like like they should. Germs spread most by human contact and very specifically with human hands. We're very aware of that today like, like never before. Oh, to be clean. What we've worried about, what we're focused on, what we're learning more and more about these days physically, biologically, is so true spiritually as well. You and I need to be washed. We need to be made new. We need to be cleansed. I can't help to think about Peter feeling like a coward, hiding in the shadows, dealing with his regret and shame, and just the fact that he didn't feel pure and clean. I can't help but think that Peter thought of the words of his Savior. When Jesus taught things like, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The healthy don't need a doctor, it's the sick. And that's the time when we're most open to the message of Easter. Not when we seek to manage a life that's well-managed, that's outwardly admired and respected and highly regarded. But when we realize that we need a Savior to cleanse us to bring healing to us. We're a nation that's watching expert doctors speak into our lives on the daily. But what we need in the deepest way is for the great physician to speak in to us. Years ago, I was gripped by a book called The Ragmuffin Gospel by a man named Brennan Manning. And he talks about this very idea of how blessed are the poor in spirit, how blessed are those who mourn, how the healthy are not the ones that need the doctor, but the sick. He talks about that the gospel comes to those who know that they need a Savior. And on Easter morning, I wonder if that's you. Paraphrasing a little bit from Brendan Manning, he says the gospel comes best, the Easter message this morning comes best to those who know they're lacking, who don't have it together, who don't measure up, who are in distress and under pressure, 
who are nobodies, has-beens, not good enough, to the geeks, the nerds, the wimps, those who have dandruff and blemishes and bad breath, to the anxious, the unemployed, to the divorced, to the homeless, to the dropouts, the burnouts, and the leftouts, to the chronically angry, to the sexually addicted, to the emotionally exhausted, to the mentally ill. This morning, I would like for us to read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 8, we'll read from the ESV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. From this passage we've read together on Easter, you see this living hope, this new birth, this divine inheritance. Bob is a 70-year-old wealthy widower. He's been dating a number of girls and shows up at the country club where he's greeted with his friends. And under his arm is a very beautiful, much, much younger woman. And they ask Bob on the side, they say, Bob, Bob's 70, by the way. And they say, Bob, what did you do? Did you tell her that you were 50? And Bob said, no, I told her that I was 90. The word inheritance is kind of a funny thing, but a serious thing. We think of money. We think of wealth and possessions. We think of a will. We think of families fighting and people getting rich or being disappointed. But here Peter tells us about an inheritance that can never, ever be touched. It won't be defiled. It never perishes. And that's what we have in the gospel. I think it's why billions of people get excited about Easter. I've taught this before, but the word hope is is mentioned 71 times in the New Testament, but only one time before the resurrection. You see, it's the resurrection of Christ that gives us this living hope, this new birth, and this divine inheritance. Notice what Peter talks about. He, he confronts one of the mistakes that I often make in my thinking, that hope cannot exist with sorrow. Peter here talks about a thing that I don't want us to lose sight of this Easter. That's our trials. That's the hard stuff that we go through. He says that there's a purifying work that God wants to do. Do you know that the living hope, the new birth, the divine inheritance is for us in this life tied to the questions that we have, the concerns and the tough times. And that's how God purifies us. Proverbs 17 says it well as the crucible for silver and as the furnace for gold, so it is the heart of God as he tests us to make us, to refine us to be the people that we're called to be. And Peter knew that. Sure, he wanted intervention. He wanted miracles. He wanted to see Lazarus raised from the dead. He wanted to see the blind see and the lame walk. He wanted that. But then he had to enter into the arrest, the betrayal, the death. And it was after the resurrection after Jesus gave him the cleansing touch 
that we see this man speaking to us today about the kind of hope, but it's a hope that's tied to our sorrows. What type of purifying work might God be doing? As the silver is to the crucible, as the furnace is to gold, so are trials for you and I. Goldsmiths know this, that they take gold from the earth and they put that gold into a furnace. And in that furnace, they heat it up and they put another element like lead in with it. And the combination of lead and heat does a refining work. And to the top of the surface comes what is translated to, in English to crud. The crud, the stuff, the extra stuff, the unneeded stuff, the things that need to be cleansed and purified from our lives come to the surface. And God can only do that through trials that we experience. Look how somebody put it one time when it comes to pain that we experience. It's hope, but it's a hope in the midst of earth's pain. Pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. One more time so you can think of on it. Pain plants the flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. Hope is not a dead hope. It's not a false hope. It's a living hope. But it's a hope in the midst of sorrow and pain. A pain and a sorrow that given to Christ can be refined. You and I can be refined. What happens when we experience pain we know, we learn in ways that we could never learn about our weakness and about his strength. This book of 1 Peter mentions suffering 15 times and uses eight different Greek words. Let me show you one that's used in relation to suffering, pain, and trials. It's this word. And this Greek word, uh, it means variation or diversity. In other words, there's many kind of trials that we're going to experience. For this hope to be refined, for us to walk in this new birth and experience this divine inheritance, we are going to do so amidst a variety of different pains and trials. This word, Greek word, is where we get our word polka dot. In other words, there are many shapes and forms and colors to the trials. Peter will go on to say that we suffer for doing good. We suffer for a variety of reasons. It's a polka dot, various forms, shapes, and colors, but there's a refining nature to it. This morning, the Easter message is for people, for people who know that they need a great physician, for people who know that they need to be purified and cleansed, for folks who are aware that we've turned our back, that our egos have written checks that we can't cash, and so we need a savior. The message of Easter is that Jesus has knocked it out of the park and he's done so for you and I.